0: This episode of the Black Doctors podcast is brought to you by Empath IQ. Empath IQ provides reputation management and marketing tools to improve relationships between you and your patients. Their software platform encourages and curates positive reviews, enhancing your online reputation. Visit www.empathiq.io and mention the show to receive a special discount just for signing up. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Black Doctors podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors podcast this week. I'm super excited to be speaking with Everett Moss II. He is, he's had a, a, Pretty incredible career thus far, and, and he's currently finishing up school to become a certified registered nurse anesthetist. His career has brought him from firehouse to emergency departments to riding around in helicopters, saving lives. Um, even went up to, to New York during the height of the pandemic to help out there. Um, Super interested to to pick his brain and and learn about his pathway to CRNA school and things he learned, becoming an incredibly specialized nurse along the way. Everett, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. And so how did you, where are you from? I'm born and raised
1: uh, one of the few, at least the people in Atlanta say uh, uh, an (laughs) Atlanta native. I was actually born in the city of Atlanta. A lot of times when you hear people say they're from Atlanta They're from the outskirts. Right. Uh, But I grew up right in the heart of Southeast Atlanta.
0: And uh, coming through high school, did you know you wanted to go into healthcare? had no interest in healthcare. Uh,
1: My father was a firefighter, and that was my first introduction to the, I guess you would say, outskirts of healthcare. This is kind of where it starts and I knew that he was an EMT and he had interest in becoming a paramedic, but it really didn't register as something I was interested in. I started as a electrician learning the ropes and I was under a house one day with the rats and spiders and (laughs) thought to myself, this is not life. (laughs) Now don't get me wrong, I think electricians uh, is a very respectable and great career. I just realized that it wasn't for me. And for some reason, I decided that running and burning buildings were better. So uh, (laughs) that's what I decided to do. You know, my father was a very respectable man. I felt like he raised us well and he made a living, even though it was considered his part-time job because he ran a complete inside-outside maintenance business on the side. Wow. And he worked as a firefighter for his benefits and I guess the stability, so to speak. And I thought, man, he did it so I could do it. And maybe go back to school while being a firefighter. I had no idea what I really wanted to be. But once I went through EMT school and got to the stations and started working around the paramedics and saw what all they knew, what all they could do, I thought, man, I I really like this. Went to paramedic school and kind of got bit by the bug, so to speak. I really Mm. enjoyed the learning of the medicine, the procedures, the interventions, and that's what fueled my passion.
0: Yeah, that's that's crazy because I uh, part of my story is uh, I started as an electrician's helper, and I was working in Shands Hospital in Jacksonville in the sub basement, uh-huh. crawling around with waiters, running electrical conduit. Right, right. I had, had a very similar thought that this ain't this ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> so, how old were you when you started down the pathway to becoming a firefighter?
1: I was nineteen. Uh, everybody in my recruit class called me baby boy. <laughs> because I was the youngest in my recruit class and before I graduated with my EMT I was 20 years old when I hit the firehouse.
0: Okay, so it's, and it's explain this uh firefighting and EMT how are the two connected?
1: Okay, most major municipalities now require firefighters to be most of the time, at minimum, an EMT level. It used to be referred to as EMT basic, but okay. now the credentials are changed. There's an emergency responder, there's an EMT, then there's the advanced EMT, and then there's the paramedic. And each one of those levels of credentialing have a bit more education involved and a few more procedures and or medications that they can administer and carry
0: out. Gotcha. So firefighter training was in part EMT training as well, or or how does, how did that break down?
1: So the way most places do it, they'll send you through either EMT training first or fire training first. It kind of depends upon the department and their hiring amount, if they have a lot of personnel that they're bringing on, then they may divide them in halves and half off the EMT training and half off the fire school training. And then upon completion of both of those, they flip flop okay. and go through the other training prior to going into the station. And uh, that's how it was for me. My group, we went through about, I started in February. We graduated with our firefighter one credentials in June and then we started EMT school June, July, uh, which EMT intermediate at the time was about a four month training. Oh, wow. And then we went to the firehouse after that. So I started the fire department in February. By November, I was credentialed as a firefighter, one and an EMT intermediate.
0: Gotcha. And during this time, are you getting a salary or? That's the good part about
1: the fire service is that education you're paid to do throughout. For That'll most major departments, you you get a check from day one. So it kind of takes that burden of wondering how you're going to live
0: while right. learning. I'm sure for uh, most of the uh, fields that we have as necessities, you're severely underpaid, but I'm sure it helps at least get through the the training. Right. And then how long did you work as a firefighter?
1: About nine years. I worked as a Firefighter on the back of the truck for a couple years. Went back to, well, actually, I went to paramedic school within my first year. And paramedic training at the time was a 12 month program. You could do it quicker if you went to school every day, but we Mm -hmm. had it where we would go to school a couple days a week and then we uh, went through clinical rotations. So it was about a year for me to finish my paramedic training after that. I promoted through the department, became a sergeant. At the time, our sergeants were what most people recognize as driver engineers. They basically were responsible for the driving and equipment on the vehicle, Uh, but they wanted it to be a ranking position so that if an officer was off, the sergeant would switch to the in-charge seat and then one of the firefighters on the back would step up to do the driver operations. So it became a ranking structure.
0: Cool. And then um, for a lot of folks that don't work in uh, emergency services like myself, Mm -hmm. not too familiar with the emergency department, get on there occasionally. The difference between EMTs and paramedics. Can you explain that? Sure.
1: So, again, you have your emergency medical responder. Basically, these folks are trained in CPR and basic bleeding control. And they can okay. assist with uh, management of spinal stabilization if there's a major trauma or accident of light. And then you go up to EMT where they can administer oxygen and other basic, very basic uh, interventions. Then you move to the advanced EMT. So the advanced EMT can assist with medications like nitroglycerin for patients who have a history of, they can insert supraglottic airways, so okay. you know no in, no tracheal intubations or anything like that. But they use like a king airway, a combi tube, different things like that. They can help manage an airway without direct visualization. Then there's the paramedic that most people in the EMS world like to refer to as a street doctor. <laughs> they're not a doctor, but they're put in a position to diagnose according to protocols. So they have a set book of protocols that says if you deem this patient to be hypoglycemic, you choose this protocol to follow. Now, granted, you know, when it comes to hypoglycemia, we can check the glucose and to confirm that. But then there's other times where, you know, a seizure, we can administer medications for seizure, uh, opioid overdoses, all of those type things. They intubate. They're ACLS trained, so they use a cardiac monitor for one rhythm recognition, as well as cardioversion, defibrillation, all of those type things. Uh, there's critical care paramedics that some states allow to perform uh, emergency triage. You know, all of those type things. Uh, no, nowhere that I'm aware of, are they putting in you know, central lines or things of that nature, but they can monitor and manage central lines, A lines for transport, which is what I did after I left the fire service. I was a flight paramedic while I was going through nursing school. And in flight training, we go through how to perform an emergency strike. We go through, you know, which a regular EMT can also do intraosseous placement of needles, Uh, But we do all of those things from monitoring. We go through balloon pump training for some of our flight services to not, of course, insert, but to monitor and manage, troubleshoot for a transport from a lower level facility to a higher level facility.
0: Gotcha. And then for some places, at least you're working with medical control or like uh, EMS control. How does that uh, interaction work?
1: So we have a lot of standing orders. That we are to be familiar with and tested on on a regular basis. Once you reach a certain point where you're unsure or you need to deviate from those protocols, then you have to consult with the most of the time the facility that you're transporting to. Okay. Or if you're doing a facility to facility transfer, then you would consult with the doc that's sending or the doc that's receiving. Uh, so I did a little bit of uh, critical care piece transport as well. And because the PE center was very specialized, we would never consult with the sending doc. We would always consult with the receiving because they were the higher level of care. And then we could kind of deviate from our protocols a bit based off what was going on with the patient. But for the most part, a lot of the medics that are out there are operating under standing orders that they are tested on, and confirmed that they're familiar with on a fairly regular basis. But medical control is always there. If we were to ever run into any issues with airway management, decision pathways, we always have someone that we can call or they can connect us to, to help us get through whatever obstacles we may face.
0: Gotcha. I'm sure we could go on and on for days about the, yeah. the stuff you encountered, uh, fighting fires and, and saving lives. The transition, though, from the ground to the air, because you were a paramedic at the time, so you had to have flight training, or how did you become a flight paramedic? Okay.
1: So with most rotor wing helicopter transport, because there's a little bit of a distinction between your rotor wing and your Learjet. So you have some people who are flight crew members who do the long leg transfers. They may fly over to Jamaica and bring somebody back to the States. They may fly over to... Africa and bring someone back. It just kind of depends. I never did that. It was a little bit more involved, especially with time, because you're talking about sometimes day legs or flights. Mm. All of mine was rotary stuff you kind of see on TV. And if you've ever seen them landing on the highway, the higher adrenaline, pretty cool <laughs> environment. It wasn't really a transition. What what it, what it does is you go to a company, they hire you, They take you through somewhat of a flight school. It's more so flight awareness, how to approach the helicopter, what to look out for, what happens if you have an in flight emergency, survival training, all of those things to help you be safe around the helicopter, but not necessarily how to operate it, how to identify errors. There's things called cowlings and latches and such that are all around the helicopter. Anytime we would take a flight after landing, and before taking off, you are always supposed to check all of the latches, check to make sure the gas cap is on, check to make sure the doors are closed. Nothing's hanging. Nothing's loose. And that's the complete flight crew's responsibility. After that, you ensure that you get back focused on patient safety. You know, when we're picking up from a random place, all eyes out of the helicopter, you're looking for wires, you're looking for poles, you're looking for other aircraft. You're looking for anyone approaching the helicopter. All of those things are things that are really stressed in that flight environment. You know, you I had never heard of so many helicopters crashes until I got into the helicopter business. <laughs> you know, Jeez. I never paid attention to it before. Yeah. But once I started flying, I would hear about crashes all the time. And it makes you a little uneasy, but I felt really comfortable with my company because they were really big on safety. If for any reason... I decided that it was not safe for us to take a flight. If I said no, we didn't go. Wow. And no one questioned that at that moment. They may ask why later on, but at that moment, you you cancel or abort the flight, you land safely or you never take off, and then you can have a conversation about it. So I felt really good about the safety authority, so to speak, that they gave each individual crew member. And most crew matrices are a pilot who's not medically training. His training is strictly <laughs> get us there and land safely. That's his yeah, job.
0: Yeah, concentrate on that.
1: Yeah, nurse and medic combo, and that was that was the crew.
0: Yeah, I know, didn't think about the uh, like you said, eyes outside the the plane and making mm-hmm. sure you don't crash. In addition to taking care of a patient who's critically ill,
1: that's a it, lot. It, it gets it gets uh, exciting wow. at times.
0: You said you were doing this while you were in nursing school?
1: It was a kind of a overlapping. So I started with the fire department after about, let's see, five or six years. I started flying as a part-time job. I was hired as a part-time medic and I would fly doing patient transports on my off days because as a firefighter, we worked a 24, 48 hour schedule. I would be on for 24 hours, then off for 48. On for 24, off for 48. And it was a constant rotation. So in between those 48 hours of being off, most firefighters, they either run a business on the side, they work on an ambulance, they do whatever they desire on those off days. And most of them tend to work, which I did. I worked as a flight paramedic and worked as an EMS instructor. After I decided to leave the fire department, I went on to the flight service full time. Okay. Because that schedule was 2472. So I would work one full day on, three full days off, one full day on, three full off. Made it a little bit easier for me to manage my nursing school schedule. And it got me deeper into medical training because we did a lot more than the fire service required us to do from the medical aspect. It exposed me to a lot. I was landing at rural hospitals, bringing patients back to a level one landing in the middle of a cow pasture, (laughs) meeting an ambulance, (laughs) and then going to get a patient that was trapped in the woods after they fell out of a tree stand. (laughs) Okay. And we would transport them to the major trauma centers, cardiac transfers from some of our lower level cardiac facilities. They would place the balloon pump and then send them to a higher level cardiac facility. So I did that while in nursing school. Once I finished nursing school, uh, Anesthesia was the goal. Originally, I met an anesthesia assistant, the PA pathway. And that's what got me exposed to anesthesia. He was a medic. So we had a similar background. And I'm like, man, what? I can innovate all day? Sign me up. (laughs) That was my first exposure. I had no no knowledge. Coming from where I come from, I didn't have a lot of medical people in my life. So I was really clueless to the industry. And that was my first exposure. And I, I I was really excited about all of the opportunities. And I went to the OR one day because when I was a critical care transport pediatric medic, we had to spend time in the OR getting our innovations annually for our medical workers right. to feel comfortable with us going to pick up these kids and potentially having to intubate. So I talked to a couple of the uh, anesthesia assistants and I talked to the CRNAs and I had one anesthesia assistant tell me that he would be a CRNA if everything was equal as far as training. Okay. And I said, well, if he want to be one of them, <laughs> then I'm in a position to choose. So I'm going to go the CRNA route. And I started exploring. Finished nursing school, interviewed for the ICU, didn't get offered the job. The ERs were begging me to come work for them. So I went to the ER, kind of put anesthesia on the Back burner, so to speak, because I, I wasn't really convinced that that was the pathway for me. Yeah, went to the ER, started learning. Someone asked me to come into administration and be a liaison between emergency department and EMS, and I thought that was pretty cool because it was allowing me to play on both sides of the fence, so to speak. And started getting, for lack of a better word, trapped into nursing administration or hospital administration, I said, this is not it. (laughs) I'm not having fun being in administration. I miss taking care of people and doing things, not going to board meetings and PowerPoints and such. Right. So that's what got me back onto the anesthesia pathway. I talked to a friend of mine and they told me that, you know, you're not going to be happy until you just go do what you set out to do. I said, you know what? You're right. I got a wife and three kids now. It's not really comfortable for me to do that, but I got to do something and I want to be happy doing what I'm doing. So I transferred to the ICU and started putting all my focus into getting into CRNA school.
0: Yeah. How many years? uh, Because you have to do one or two years depending on the program, correct? Average place
1: is about two years, but there are schools who allow one year. So I'd say between one to three years is what most people end up doing. Minimum requirements one, max is usually two, and I'm not sure what the national average is for folks who are getting accepted. There are very few folks who take the very scenic route like I did,
0: but I
1: don't regret that experience at all. It's really been good for me in my clinical performance.
0: Yeah, so once you had all the requirements down because you have to apply to a bunch of programs, how many programs did you apply to? I was very fortunate. I
1: applied to my second program 2 days before I got accepted into my first
0: program. Oh, so so you don't apply to them all at once? It's one at a time or how? You can, but they have different application deadlines. So
1: it oh. just kind of depends because Uh, The second school that I was applying to was the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and their deadline was in December. Well, Emory's late deadline was, I think it was September 1st. So I interviewed at Emory in October. I got put on a waiting list in November. I got pulled off the waiting list early December.
0: Now, so is there a centralized application service or are you putting in individual apps with each program?
1: It is, but every school isn't on the same Oof. centralized. So you got the nursing cast system that a lot of schools are on, but there are some schools out there that are not. So if you are applying to, you know, five different schools, you may be going five different routes to apply. And that's, I know why some people fall off the, the pathway, because it can get frustrating. And if you're in the position like I I turned 37 this year, I know I still got a lot of time on my side, but I can see when when you're knocking on 40 and you start evaluating everything, you start to say, well, do I really need to go this route? Is it really what I want to do? I actually had a doc friend of mine. uh, We're about the same age. When I was considering this pathway working in the ER, I asked him what he think about me pursuing something like I am versus going to med school because I had a lot of docs that I worked with. It was like, you know, you need to go to med school. You need to go to med school. And I'm like, well, you paying for me? (laughs) (laughs) No, no one, no one signed up to pay for me. So, but I I talked to him and he said, he said, honestly, I'll tell you, if you were telling me it was a passion of yours, it's just something that you always wanted to do. I tell anybody to follow their passion, but if it's just something that you're, kind of thinking about doing, he said, I really can't advise you to do it. Because of the journey that you have to go through to get there, you need that passion to get you there, not just something you kind of want to do. I said, you know what? I respect that. If I could go back all over again when I was much younger, now that I know what I know about the industry, I think I would have truly enjoyed being a physician. But it just never was a passion of mine, and partially because I didn't have that exposure when I was growing up. I knew nothing about it. Fire service is what introduced me to it. Uh, there's actually a buddy I grew up with. He's actually an orthopedic resident in St. Louis right now. He okay. left about a year or two after I did. And he's he went to Augusta for his uh, med school. And now he's, he's doing it. And an injury is what drove him in that direction. He had a, wow. a leg injury. I forget specifically what happened, but he really liked his orthopedic surgeon. He had always thought about being a physician and that's what got him on the pathway. So we have a very similar background. I told him I'll see him in the OR one day. I'll put a <laughs> patient to sleep for him.
0: <laughs> yeah. And that brings up uh, such an incredible point because representation matters so much in terms of what you end up uh, becoming. And you know, can you speak about the impact that the diversity CRNA program had for you as you were in the pathway for becoming a CRNA?
1: Oh, man, you can't talk about diversity in CRNA without mentioning the name Lena Gould. Uh, She was tremendous in being an inspiration for people who are minorities. Anybody who knows anything about diversity knows it's open to all but like you said, representation representation matters. I've said it a couple times during this cast that I didn't see people who look like me in yeah. the medical field. Sure, they were there, but I didn't see them. I saw
0: working helicopters. I tell you, yeah.
1: oh man, that's <laughs> still the case, right? I mean, when I was flying as a medic, there were only like three in the whole state of Georgia, sure. uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure nationally, it's probably less than fifty. You know, especially helicopter. Now, you may see more on the Learjet side, but there's not a lot. So the same thing with diversity. It kind of gave, gave you that reminder that I can't do this because yeah. there's other people who look like me that's doing it. It's not a feel that I'm not wanted in. Well, I may not be, but there's people out there who want me in it. So regardless of what the majority say, there's a group of people over here who not only want me in it, they're willing to support me in it and they're willing to help me not make the same mistakes that they made. And I think that's a huge thing about diversity CRNA is that they give you what what I would call or what they would probably call as well a blueprint, a blueprint of how to get from point A to point B, what to look out for and how to overcome the issues that you may face. And at the end of the day, anybody who's going through any of these programs to become a physician, to become a CRNA, to become hell, even a firefighter. It's always nice to be able to have somebody you can call to say, hey, I'm having a bad day, simply because it was a bad day, or because somebody didn't like the way I look, somebody didn't like the way I talk, any of those things. And it's good to have that Base, that foundation, that group of people that I know that I can reach out for. Even if I can't talk to all of them, I can sit back from afar and watch them. And that alone
0: can give me some motivation. Yeah, absolutely. Because I follow uh, the things that she does on Instagram. And I see the um, programs that she sets up just to bring nurses together to have them do these procedures and, and see what a CRNA does. And like, it just seems like such an impactful program to help diversify this field. Absolutely. So you, uh, you made it. Emory, fantastic uh, program, fantastic city, your city. How was that adjustment into full-time school?
1: Every day I feel like it gets rougher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I try to be very realistic and honest with folks. It's not that the content or program is not doable it is it is definitely doable for me it's difficult because I'm a husband and a father of three mm-hmm. I have always been uh, i had a my baby girl just turned sixteen so for the past seventeen years, I've been the primary provider and caretaker for my family, and in most ways, I still am that so Anybody who knows what that feels like, you know that there's a part of your brain you can't devote to nothing else hmm. because it's you just can't not if you are the type of provider and protector that I was raised to be, that part of my brain will never shut off, hmm. and it's it makes it a challenge now, same thing for mothers. I have no idea what it feels like to be a mother i honestly. No disrespect, I don't want to know because I'm thankful that mothers are mothers, right? I'm I'm thankful for them, I respect them, I applaud them, I support them. So I don't know what that feels like, but I can only imagine what they go through when they come through these type of rigorous programs. When
0: having kids and everything,
1: yeah, even even you know having birthing kids during the process, much respect, (laughs) you know, And, and I really mean that because it's it's a challenge and. Not saying that it's easier for the younger, no responsibility folks, but in a way, it's certain things that they don't have to really worry about. Yeah. You know, and that changes the game. And it's something that you really don't understand until you get there, until you have those kids, until you have that responsibility weighing heavy on your shoulders. It's a bit hard to fully comprehend. Uh, So that's that's my biggest challenge. And again, 37 haven't been in full-time school, because even going through nursing school, it was challenging. But due to the fact that I had so much pre-hospital and hospital exposure, Mm -hmm. it made it a little bit easier for me to understand the harder concepts. It was the minutiae, like it is now, that really eats away at me and really kind of frustrates me. But I, I understand the why and I respect it And it's a process. I'm also a person who is very big. Like I said, I did EMS education for a while. So I'm really big on a non-conventional education, educational delivery. I'm not the person who really likes I'm going to do this PowerPoint. I'm going to put it up. I'm going to read and talk, talk at you. And hopefully hopefully you get it. I like what a lot of people refer to now as kind of the flip classroom. Where there's more interaction, there's case studies that instead of doing a traditional, I'm just going to tell you what A, B and C is. We're going to do a case study and we're going to walk through A, B and C throughout this case study. And you can connect the dots as you go. That's the type of learner I am. So that's the type of instructor I tried to be when it came to EMS. And I think that you touch more learning styles when you do it that way because you have the visual. You have that interaction. And then for the people who are auditory, they're getting it, too. So Mm -hmm. I really like those instructors who go above and beyond to be an educator. You know, something that I say a lot to folks is we take our professions, the best and brightest, and we throw them in a classroom. Right. And we say, teach. But we wouldn't take the best and brightest teacher and throw them into our profession and say, put them to sleep. So I think it's kind of backwards sometimes when we jump into education, but we don't learn what education really is about. And I think sometimes students suffer. You got to do you got to do your part. But I think sometimes the students get the short end of the stick while people are learning how to be an educator.
0: Um, so you're in CRNA school in Atlanta at Emory. Can you give an overview of how the program is set up? How long is it and and how's it broken down?
1: Absolutely. It's a 36-month program, three-year program. We start out with didactic. We go through chemistry and physics for anesthesia. We go through a advanced pathophysiology, advanced pharmacology, and then leadership doctoral classes that really have nothing to do with anesthesia specific more so healthcare leadership then we go through general or intro to anesthesia which we learn about the anesthesia gas machine we learn about all of the the foundational stuff when it comes to anesthesia simultaneously going through anesthesia pharmacology. So first semester, we did a good overview of pharmacology as a whole. Second semester, we really focus on how it applies and affects and works with anesthesia and still doing a general assessment course that most nurse practitioners take. After that, we move into surgical procedures. We do a two semester surgical procedure course where we review a variety of different um, body systems. Like right now we're going over, you know, lasers, abdominal surgeries, um, you name it. We go through all of that. We do an, another pathophys from the anesthesia perspective. So okay. what are the anesthetic implications for obstetric patients. So we really just cover how that looks, what we're looking for, and all of the pathophys behind that. And of course, still taking, you know, transforming healthcare uh, (laughs) classes. And we start our uh, doctoral nursing project. Like my project is based upon ultrasound and airway. So we're still in the development phase, but my study project will be focused on utilization of ultrasound for airway and not anatomy identification. Okay. Um, And so then we keep going, you know, I think next semester is kind of a generalized nursing anesthesia track. I haven't dove too deep into what all we'll be going through, but basically you spend that second to last year and that last year Pretty much going over the entire body system and how you view it from the anesthesia perspective, and of course, still working on the other nursing administration stuff.
0: <laughs> um, and then for the last half, is in the OR. Last half the program.
1: Yeah. So uh, actually, so we start in the OR after two months. I mean, after two okay. semesters. I'm sorry. After two okay. semesters, we start in the OR where we're only going two days a week. Every single week, regardless of what's going on with the school's calendar, you're in the OR two days a week at a site. And the way Emory is set up, we have a lot of different sites. So we spend about two months at each site, and then we're off to another one. So just enough time for us to get really comfortable, people to get comfortable with us, and then we say goodbye. And we're off to another site. Like right now, I'm on my third site, and... In the first week in November, I'll be on my fourth site. We rotate around for about six months, doing two days a week. Then we spend about four to five months doing three days a week. And then for an entire year after that, we're in clinical four days a week, every single week. We have cardiac rotations, neural rotations, uh, peripheral nerve block rotations, obstetric rotations, pediatric rotations, and cardiac rotations. And then we have an adult rotation that I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you'll have two student nurse anesthetists being supervised by one MDA and you run the cases with that supervision. Okay. I believe that's a two month rotation as well. And that's when we're four days a week. So you really get to get that firsthand experience of what it's going to be like Once you're out of the program and functioning on your own, because most models are currently working with CRNAs with the um, um, physician anesthesiologist supervising. So you get that experience through Emory's program. So I, I think that coming from Emory, you are really equipped to function once you're out of school. And I'm looking forward to the opportunity.
0: Yeah, no. That you've had a quite a rewarding career thus far, and I'm so glad it's working out. Uh, and you're going to be a fantastic uh, CRNA in, in just a couple of short months. It's going to yeah. go quicker
1: than you think. I appreciate it, and I'm I'm looking <laughs> for the quick. You know, 21 months feels like forever, but my gas works trucking.
0: Um. So, Everett, as as we're wrapping up, what would you say to, um that younger version of yourself that's working in the firehouse or that's that young nurse on the floor that's just trying to potentially get into the ICU to maybe become a CRNA. What would you say to those folks, um, you know, to encourage them? A couple things.
1: One that I recently like to say is that the journey is seasoning for the destination. What the heck does that mm. mean? Well, You're going to experience things. You're going to have ups and downs, but just stay focused on the goal, because once you make it to that destination and you look back over all of the things that you had to go through along your journey, journey, I feel that it really makes you appreciate that destination even more. Uh, The other thing is don't allow anybody to stand in the way of your dreams, your visions, your goals. People will try to do that but i am a firm believer that nobody can stand in my way if i have the determination to push through can they yeah. step in front of me absolutely but nothing stops me from going around over under and sometimes through <laughs> <laughs> but you just you know you have to you have to keep pursuing uh i think sometimes doubt of the possibilities may have lengthened my journey so don't doubt yourself know that if there's a will there's a way i know that's kind of cliche but i believe it if you want to get somewhere nothing can stop you from getting there unless you decide to quit
0: that's good that's good i like that uh journey seasoning for the destination that's it Everett Moss, thank you so much for joining us on this show. If people want to track your progress, I mean, I've definitely been following along and and seeing your experiences. Where can they they go to see what you're up to?
1: Instagram is kind of my go-to right now. It's the underscore paramurse, P-A-R-A-M-U-R-S-E. I always have to kind of explain what that is, because a lot of people think I'm using the term merse, but that's actually not right. Uh, What I did when I became uh, a nurse, I was thinking one day and I was like, paramedic nurse, paramedic nurse. Well, P-A-R-A-M, that's five letters, N-U-R-S-E, that's five letters. Let me put them together. And there you have it, paramurse. Um, but I that's took right. off the N because it didn't sound right if you say paramedurse. nurse <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I just kind of put those letters together or words together to really, I guess, be an example of my journey. You know, I'm very I'm a very proud paramedic. I really enjoy the profession and I still try to give back. Currently, I, you know, not much now that I'm in school, but I do a lot of cadaveric teaching with the state and it was initially geared toward EMT. So I I really appreciate. my, uh, have a passion for being a medic and a nurse, so I joined the two words together, and there you have it—the
0: paramedic. Soon, soon gonna be the p- paramedic anesthetist.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm working on that. I'm working on. I gotta come up with something. I hadn't quite figured it out yet. I can't
0: really reveal it yet because um, I don't want anybody wrong. taking it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll still <laughs> we'll stay tuned. Uh, Everett, thank you so much for joining us on the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters. No problem. Happy to be here. Um, anybody
1: reach out, I'll be happy to help any way I can.
0: The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit, volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.